Hello, and welcome to the People's Forum podcast. My name is Rita, and I work at the People's Forum, which is a political, education, and cultural center for internationalist and working class movement building in New York City. We welcome you all today as we discuss the work of Alexandra Kalantai. We all know that no revolution has been possible without the struggle, organization, and leadership of women. Under capitalism, gender oppression and violence is a permanent condition. State violence, domestic violence, femicide, and economic marginalization are real and urgent issues for women both in the United States and internationally. In this podcast, we'll learn about the legacy of writer and revolutionary Alexandra Kalantai. She was one of the first to clearly articulate a program of working-class feminism. She fought tirelessly to overthrow the Tsar and after the revolution of 1917, worked to introduce essential programs and policies for women's liberation. Her writing is a gift that both guides and inspires us. Her political analysis holds lessons and methods for building working-class feminism today, and her novels and short stories help us imagine the liberated woman after capitalism. What can we learn from Kalantai? And what does it mean to build working-class feminism today? You'll be listening to a recorded Zoom event with Jody Dean. Jody Dean teaches political, feminist, and media theory in Geneva, New York. She has written and edited 13 books, including Comrade, The Communist Horizon, and Crowds and Party. You can find more information on Kalantai's readings and Jody Dean's books on politicaleducation.peoplesforum.org. Without further ado, Jody Dean. I am very happy for the opportunity to talk about the Russian communist revolutionary Alexandra Kalantai. Alexandra Kalantai lived from 1872 to 1952. She was a speaker, a writer, and an organizer. Prior to the 1917 revolution, she was active in the socialist women work, women's workers movement in Russia and Europe. She also traveled on a speaking tour of 81 cities in the United States um, in the interest of peace to try to block um, the move towards the, what would become World War I. Um, knowing, knowing the work of Alexandra Kalantai is important for knowing our history. She was the first woman to be a cabinet official. She was the um, people's, um, she was um, appointed to the um, first Bolshevik cabinet and was the people's commissar for welfare. You know, the, um, this was right after the October Revolution. She also founded the new Soviet government's women's department, which was the Jen Atyel. And she was one of the first women to hold an official diplomatic post. Um, her first posting was to Norway, then later she was a diplomat to Mexico, then later back to Norway and Sweden. Um, but so this are, that's her little biography. But more, more exciting than that, more exciting than her official roles um, was actually her revolutionary work and her writing. And I think that intention to these can inspire us today, and they can also help us clarify and sharpen our analyses and our politics. A Marxist committed to organizing women workers. Kalantai argued that women's subordination was anchored in economic conditions, that is, in the conditions of the production and reproduction of immediate life. And that's the formulation from Frederick Ingalls, production and reproduction of immediate life. These conditions of the production and reproduction of immediate life, these conditions involve how human existence is produced and reproduced and the means of existence, right? How our means of existence are produced and reproduced. So food, clothing, shelters, um, tools, and so on. How is all this secured and arranged? 
women's position in the economy determines women's position in society. The repercussion of this is that women's liberation depends on the elimination of capitalism, on the elimination of class society and exploitation, and on the communist rearrangement of production and life. From the outset, then, I want to emphasize the continued relevance of this approach, material conditions, economic conditions, position in production and reproduction. Too much of what circulates these days in the mainstream as feminism ignores or underplays the central role of the economy, instead trying to get us to focus on attitudes, language, subjective feelings without attending to their economic basis. Correlative to this omission of the structuring role of the economy is individualism. Too much attention is placed on the individual and their feelings, comfort, preferences, and, and desires, as if these were not themselves collective social effects. Alexandra Kollontai teaches us to recognize that the most intimate aspects of our lives are collective. In my remarks today, I'm going to draw out three themes from Kollontai's life and work. Struggle, history, and love. What we'll see is that her attention to women's position in the economy leads her to a powerful and nuanced approach to, approach to the liberation of women workers. We'll see that her understanding of history produces keen insight into changes in the family. And we'll see that her longing for communism, right, including the concrete work toward building proletarian dictatorship, this leads her to view intimate relationships as inextricable from solidarity. Organizing love is part of organizing production. It's part of creating the space and support necessary for fulfilling cooperative work. Okay, so I'm gonna start with struggle. Um, particularly class struggle. Kalantai was a fierce advocate for women workers. She says in her autobiography that she put her whole heart and soul into the struggle for the abolition of the slavery of working women. This meant winning women workers over to socialism and fighting for equal rights for women's liberation. Kollontai thus engaged in a two-front struggle, on the one hand against bourgeois feminists and on the other for the socialist party's attention to women workers. So we're gonna, I'm gonna look at both of these two sides um, in more detail, right? The side of her critique of bourgeois feminism, right? This feminism of the middle class and the upper class, the owners, the capitalists, and then her struggle to get the socialist party, Russian, Russian Social Democratic Labor Party and then Communist Party to get them to attend to the um, struggle of women workers. So um, Kalantai actually did not identify as a feminist. She understood feminism as a bourgeois politics, the politics of a particular class of women. That feminism was the politics of bourgeois women appeared in the way that feminists failed to challenge the basic structure of society. They accepted it and wanted to move up in it. As Kalantai writes, the feminists seek equality in the framework of existing class society. In no way do they attack the basis of this society. They fight for prerogatives for themselves without challenging the existing prerogatives and privileges. I gotta say, this always makes me think of Hillary Clinton, right? Fighting just for this, you know, her role in the same structure. Class divides the category women. 
women, just as women, are not unified on the basis of common interest. So Kalantai rejects the idea that women have common interests that stem from the fact of their sex. She writes, such unity does not and cannot exist. Class struggle divides women just as it does men. Bourgeois feminists pose the question of women's liberation from their specific class position, their specific desires for education, property, suffrage, which is voting rights, and access to the professions. Kalantai recounts how feminism emerged as a political movement in the middle of the 19th century in the context of the development of capitalism. As capitalism becomes the dominant mode of production, the position of the middle classes, the petty bourgeoisie, they, this becomes much more unstable and precarious. While working class women had already been absorbed into factory labor, now bourgeois women started to face the need for income and meaningful work. So they demand rights to go to university and to enter into the broader array of jobs. Their struggle against the men Wait, just a second, I've lost my place. Okay, their struggle against the men who want to deny them access to these other positions, that's what gets called um, feminism, right? Working class women had already been welcomed into factories, right? Primarily because they could be paid less than men. So it wasn't that women didn't have access to work. It was that bourgeois women didn't have access to the kind of better jobs that they wanted. So feminists, again, they wanted the same privileges that the men of their class have. So they treat men as the enemy and they try to enlist women in, they try to enlist all women, particularly work, working class women in their struggle for equal rights without changing the basic structure of society. In contrast, proletarian women have fundamentally different interests. The interests of proletarian women coincide with those of proletarian men. Kalantai writes, they think of men as their comrades, as those oppressed by the same conditions, enchained under capitalist exploitation and domination. Now, Kalantai has in mind the massive numbers of working class women who were thrown into the capitalist labor, labor force, over 60 million in Europe and the United States before the outbreak of the First World War. The working woman is first and foremost a member of the working class, she says. And feminism does nothing for this working woman. She doesn't have anything to gain from an alliance with bourgeois feminists. In her history of the movement of women workers in Russia, Kalantai explains this point concretely. Women workers had demands that arose from their specific conditions. They wanted a shorter working day. They wanted higher pay, more humane treatment in the factories, and less police, police surveillance. The bourgeois feminist had no interest in any of this. Kalantai gives the example of domestic workers. Bourgeois feminist organizing as the Alliance for Female Equality. This is in Russia. This is all occurring in Russia. So bourgeois feminist organizing as the Alliance for Female Equality called a meeting for domestic servants and large numbers turned out, but they were very quickly turned off by the quote, mixed alliance between lady employers and domestic employees, end quote. As an aside, um, Kalantai's attention to domestic labor always makes me think of some of the work and writing of black communist women like Louise Thompson Patterson, Esther Cooper Jackson, and, uh, and Alice Childress in the mid-century US, because they too were prioritizing the need to organize household labor. 
but back to Russia. Throughout 1905, the year of the first Russian Revolution, right? So this is 12 years before the famous 1917 revolution. But the first Russian Revolution, 1905, there were massive strike actions and street demonstrations all carried out by domestic servants, by laundresses, cooks, maids. They were all demanding better treatment from their employers, an eight-hour working day, a minimum wage, and separate living quarters. <laughs> Women workers played a major role in the 1905 revolution. Describing Bloody Sunday, Kalantai writes, the woman worker, young girl, working wife, is a common figure among the mass victims of that January day. This cer they circulated the slogan of the general strike throughout the factories, and they were some of the very first to walk out. So she emphasizes the courage and agency of proletarian women throughout the 1905 revolution. Kalantai writes, in the October days, exhausted by work and their harsh existence on the edge of starvation, women leave the factories and in the name of common cause, courageously deprive their children of their last piece of bread. With simple moving words, the woman worker appeals to her male comrades, suggesting that they too leave their work. She keeps up the spirits of those on strike, breathing energy into those who waver. The woman worker struggled tirelessly, protested courageously, sacrificed herself heroically for the common cause. And the more active she became, the more rapidly was the process of her mental awakening achieved. The woman worker began to take note of the world around her, of the injustices stemming from the capitalist system. She became more painfully and acutely aware of the bitterness of all her sufferings and sorrows. I highlight this quote because some critics, uh, some feminist critics of Kalantai charge her with failing to criticize masculinity, with embracing a view of the worker as masculine. I think this is wrong. It overlays gender onto class struggle in a way that erases the strength and courage of women workers. It's a criticism that uses binary gender to paint over the power and agency of proletarian comrades on the same side of political struggle. But Kalantai is praising courage, endurance, dedication, and the awakening of political consciousness that organized struggle brings about. Right? She sees this as what's happening to women workers. Here's another example from the 1905 revolution, um, what um, Kalantai describes as the petticoat rebellions of peasant women in the countryside. Y'all recall like, petticoats are those big slips that are under long dresses and skirts, right? So that's why it's the petticoat rebellion. Um, filled with anger and with a boldness surprising for women, the peasant women attacked military and police headquarters where the army recruits were stationed, seized their menfolk, and took them home. Armed with rakes, pitchforks, and brooms, peasant women drove the armed guards from the villages. In this protest, defense of peasant interests and of purely female interest are so closely interwoven that there are no grounds for dividing them and classing the petticoat rebellions as part of the feminist movement. To describe the fierce actions of the peasant women as primarily women's interests would be to detra detract from their class context. And it was that context, that class context of their lives as peasants that was pushing them. To be sure, 
the eruption of the peasant women on the political stage also led them to demand political equality. But for Kalantide, this was an effect of the awareness that resulted from their fight for the economic and political interest of the peasantry as a whole. That is an effect of their fight against um, the expropriation of their land and their fight to end the conditions of agricultural bondage. Kalantide argues that the goal of bourgeois feminists is political equality within class society, not the dismantlement of that society. Working class women realize that so long as they are forced to sell their labor power, so long as they bear the yoke of capitalism, they will not be free. All their choices, including who and whether to marry, whether to bear children and how to care for them, the sort of work they can do if they choose to marry, if they choose to bear children, all of this is going to be constrained by the market. So Kalantide did not think of herself as a feminist. She rejects the idea that there is some universal women's question, and she thinks of that as a feminist reassuring self-delusion. Women's liberation requires socialism, the end of class society, and capitalist exploitation. So what then about the socialist? Um, um, did they embrace the cause of proletarian women? This question leads now to this other half or uh, other front of struggle that Colin Tide was engaged in throughout her life and work, right? So I talked about her struggle against bourgeois feminists first, and now I'm gonna look at how she um, fought for the recognition of working women's struggles inside the socialist party. Um, she fought tirelessly to get the socialists to recognize and champion women workers. She says in her autobiography that it was difficult to convince members of the party to include women's concern in their platform. Even in the first couple of years after the 1905 revolution, which had been really pushed by women, as we've seen, even then many socialists continued to associate women's concerns with bourgeois feminism, right? They couldn't see feminism as anything but bourgeois. They weren't able to recognize a socialist and proletarian women's feminism. By 1940, though, uh, which before the right before World War One um, broke out, this was starting to change. And both factions, um, Bolshevik and Menshevik, of the Russian Social Democratic Labor Party, both factions began to take up women's issues in a practical way. Kalantai and other women in the party, um, they still had to continue to fight for women's concerns to keep them on the radar, but they had a much, there was much more of um, attention to it, support of it. They had, they were having an easier go of it. So as the, um, as um, Kalantai and her comrades sought to do this, they in classic Leninist fashion, they established a newspaper, um, Rabotnitsa, Let's go to the newspaper. That's um, um, Lenin's wife, um, Krupskaya, there on the cover of that issue. Um, so they established a newspaper. And of course, Kalantai continued her own work, speaking, writing, and organized. Um, some of this organizing work included her participation in the strike of women laundry workers. And that strike was calling for the municipalization of all the laundries. It, it lasted about six weeks and unfortunately did not succeed. Um, the work also can, um, included pressuring trade unions for equal pay for women and included um, trying to press for maternity protection. 
Kalantai attributes her party's renew, um, new and improved attention to women's workers to the way that women's conditions and the general, um, the way that women's conditions were declining as World War I um, broke out, right? There was a dramatic decline in living conditions, high um, uh, vital goods um, were becoming more and more expensive, more and more harder, um, harder and harder to find. So the society was encountering a real and undeniable crisis of social reproduction that the Socialist Party had to deal with. After the October Revolution and her appointment as People's Commissar of Social Welfare, Kalantai took numerous initiatives to improve social reproduction with measures around disabled war veterans, the education of young girls, reorganizing orphanages as children's homes, convening a committee of doctors to elaborate a free public health system, and more. She was most proud of her work in creating the legal foundation of a central office for maternity and infant welfare. And this um, office included plans for a prenatal care palace, modern nurseries, um, and a whole slew of different kinds of creches or nursery schools. Um, for um, really what all of this was, was like the nationalization of maternity and infant care, right? The understanding that maternity and infant care were, was a project of everyone, not something that should be private. So Kalantai sketched out her vision of uh, how pregnant women would be welcomed into a special home with garden and flowers. She wrote, it will be so designed that every pregnant woman has just given, that every pregnant woman who has just given birth can live there joyfully in health and comfort. The doctors in this society family are concerned not just about preserving the health of the mother and child, but about relieving the woman of the pain of childbirth. Science is making progress in this field and can help the doctor here. When the child is strong enough, the mother returns to her normal life and takes up again the work that she does for the benefit of the large family society. She does not have to worry about her child. Society is there to help her. Children will grow up in the kindergarten, the children's colony, the creche, and the school under the care of experienced nurses. Maternity is no longer a cross, only its joyful aspects remain. Kalantai's work in the new Soviet government, both as Commissar for Social Welfare and later with the Women's Department, this involved socializing maternity and infant care, socializing child care, it involved socializing reproductive labor. Her writings sought to imagine new socialist love relations, the new morality of free and equal comrades. Um, it was it was very inspiring and wonderful. Yet the civil war, the com, um, economic devastation it brought about, and then um, faction struggles within her party meant that she did not get to see her work fully realized. So I've been talking about her focus on women workers and how that meant she was engaged in struggle on two sides, against bourgeois feminism and for the socialist and communist parties, attention to the imperative of organizing women and attending to their, their material conditions. I'm now going to move to history. Kalantai's approach to political struggle was grounded in historical materialism. That is the Marxist approach to history. She didn't see women's position or the structure of the family as somehow natural or given. It wasn't like some unchanging patriarchy that lasted for thousands of years. 
On the contrary, the family changes with the mode of production. The structure of the family under capitalism was particularly oppressive to women because it made women economically dependent on their husbands and it made their husbands dependent on the wage. Kalantai contrast, so as a way to bring out the way, um, you know, how bad capitalism was for women because of its the way, because of its relation to the family, she draws out a time of life before capitalism had developed in Russia. She calls it our grandmother's time. And she says, this is what the family looked like before capitalism. Typically, the husband was the breadwinner and may earn wages outside the home. Um, the woman and now quoting, the woman did everything that the modern working and peasant woman has to do, but besides this cooking, washing, cleaning, and mending, she spun wool and linen, wove cloth and garments, knitted stockings, made lace, prepared, as far as her resources permitted, all sorts of pickles, jams, and other preserves for winter, and manufactured her own candles. And this is important because for Kalantai, what matters is that domestic labor that she that the um, woman did prior to capitalism, it was necessary not just for the family, but for the state as a whole. The national economy benefited because women made commodities, right, items to be sold on the market. The woman's labor wasn't just towards satisfying the needs of her family. It wasn't just reproductive. It was productive labor. Quote, the interests of the whole nation were involved. For the more work the woman and the other members of the family put into making cloth, leather, and wool, the surplus of which was sold in the neighboring, mar neighboring market, the greater the economic prosperity of the country as a whole. The development of capitalist industry changes the economic role and also the social role of the family. Rather than primarily a unit of production, the family under capitalism is a unit of consumption. Because of the insufficiency of the husband's wages, women are then forced to leave the home and search for waged work. Now they don't have time to make all the items that they used to make. They barely have time to see after the kids make dinner or sleep. And it would be unproductive for them to spend their time making candles and weaving cloth because these items are now manufactured on a mass scale. As Kalantai writes, the machine has superseded the wife. Rather than work that is productive for the national economy, housework is now reduced to repetitive and exhausting tasks of cooking, cleaning, washing, and mending. These tasks are, these tasks are important for the family, but Kalantai says they're of no value to the state, quote, because they do, because they do not create any new values or make any contribution to the prosperity of the country, end quote. So the housewife does this work over and over without creating any value, which for Kalantai means without making any commodity. Now, I would expect that some of you will be thinking of various feminists' criticisms of Kalantai's account here. For one, she doesn't challenge or question the sexual division of labor in the home. She naturalizes it, assuming women's work, rather than, say, considering that maybe men could take on some of these tasks. There are also some feminists who've got very compelling arguments that reject the idea that reproductive labor is not value-producing labor, right? They argue instead that reproductive labor 
does produce value because it produces labor power. That's a very, there's a very interesting debate there. I'm not going to go into those details because I, to my mind, both of the criticisms, the one about the you know men doing work in the household and the um, production of value, both of those, I think, miscontized primary point, which is, which regards the changed historical position of the family under capitalism, right? That's what her focus is. That's what her emphasis is, is on. Once the capitalist mode of production made more women have to enter the workforce, the family started to fall apart. The economic circumstances that had held it together, right? The combination of family's dependence on the father's wage plus domestic production where the children as well as the wife engaged in productive labor, these no longer held. More women entered the wage labor force, often with husband and wife working different shifts and child rearing constituting a real challenge, especially for working class parents. Increasingly, women workers were supporting their husbands as well as their children. So the family structure Kalantai wants us to see is a fetter on social relations. It's locking women into it, women in particular in misery. And I would say as an aside again, um, it's no wonder that contemporary American conservatives, actually not just American, but um, all over the world, conservatives defend the family because this, the family continues relations of hierarchy and dependence. Now, capitalism can't solve this problem. But communism can by socializing all labor, collectivizing housekeeping, and making childcare a social responsibility. As Kalantai writes, communist society has this to say to the working woman and working man. You're young, you love each other. Everyone has the right to happiness. Therefore, live your life. Do not flee happiness. Do not fear marriage, even though under capitalism, marriage was truly a chain of sorrow. Do not be afraid of having children. Society needs more workers and rejoices at the birth of every child. You do not have to worry about the future of your child. Your child will know neither hunger nor cold. Kalantai sees history as tending in the direction of the socialization of all labor. And I should add here that this goes as far as breastfeeding. Uh, she says that in the future communist society, refusing to breastfeed another's baby will be as bad as eating another's baby would be right now. Um, but once the family is, so anyway, that's just an aside, like how far she takes the socialization of labor. Once the family is no longer the site of productive work, it's no longer necessary and this is liberating. Kalantai writes, in place of the old relationship between men and women, a new one is developing, a union of affection and comradeship, a union of two equal members of communist society, both of them free, both of them independent, and both of them workers. No more domestic bondage for women, no more inequality within the family, no need for women to fear being left without support and with children to bring up. The woman in communist society no longer depends upon her husband, but on her work. It is not in her husband, but in her capacity for work that she will find support. She need have no anxiety about her children. The worker state will assume responsibility for them. Marriage will lose all the elements of material calculation which cripple family life. Marriage will be a union of two persons who love and trust each other. So history is tending in a socialist direction, change in the family, socialization of responsibility for children. We see broad outlines of this in institutions like public schools and in changes in divorce and marriage law. 
It's apparent among the bourgeoisie who hire people to take care of their kids and clean their houses. We can recognize variations on it today, where services that might formerly have been done at home, like cooking, cleaning, and laundry, these are supplied by the market and people pay for them. That these services are mediated by the market rather than socially provided creates an intense burden on working class women, poor women, single women. What do they do if they're pregnant and have young children? The new Soviet government legalized abortion, but for Kalantai, that wasn't enough. What was really necessary was a change in the social conditions of maternity. For her, motherhood is not a private matter, but a social obligation. And that means it requires complete social support. In sum, Kantai's historical materialist approach to the family grounded her efforts to transfer responsibilities for social reproduction from this outmoded and decaying institution of the family and to society and the state. And now the third section um, I wanna talk about are the third theme in Kantai's writing, love. In her autobiography, Kalantai said love played too great a role in her life. It was an incredible, incredible squandering of her mental energy, a diminution of her labor power and barren emotional experiences. Her writings on communist morality suggest ways of reimagining social ties so that neither women nor men are burdened by love affairs. She writes, love is only one aspect of life and must not be allowed to overshadow the other facets of the relationships between individual and collective. Kalantai's vision of a love beyond the confines of the couple provided an alternative, one that began not from romance, marriage, and the family, but from the question of the forms of relation that would best strengthen the workers' collective. Love and sex are not private matters, they're social. Writing in 1921, Kalantai diagnosed a widespread sexual crisis in the new Soviet society. And she saw this crisis as resulting from the continuation of the distorting influences of the bourgeoisie. On the one hand, the, uh, the problem was primarily economic. I mean, she, she even said it was three-fourths economic. But on the other hand, there was one quarter of the problem that really came from ideology, namely extreme individuality, a possessive approach to love, where one person owns another, and a belief in sexual inequality. This bourgeois sex ideology produces the emotional intensity and deep-seated problems that plague love relations in capitalist society. So Kanta said that what was necessary is a radical re-education of the psyche and the development of love relationships anchored in comradeship and solidarity. So, with, so as she was thinking about this, she thought about in terms of, well, there should be some role for state regulation, but a lot of it won't be. So with respect to state regulation, she said there were two grounds for legislating sexual conduct, um, public health and population control. For the most part, though, she thought that sexual behavior was a matter of education agitation and morality. That is, it's a matter of the standards that communists apply to each other. So for example, do communists hold a double standard with regard to men and women's conduct? 
Do they recognize that sex is a healthy and natural instinct that should neither be repressed nor excessive? And for her, excessive um, seemed to mean um, sexual relations before maturity. And she thought that those were excessive because they exhaust the capacity for work. But she didn't say a whole lot about um, what exactly um, um, she meant by excessive social um, sexual relations. She did provide um, our list five key changes in sexual relations, um, particularly she was interested in sexual relations between men and women. And she thought that these um, five changes would strengthen the workers collective, particularly during the period of the dictatorship of the proletariat or the transition to communism. So there are five of these. Um, I've only listed four on there, but um, there's five. So one, all sexual relationships must be based on mutual inclination, love, infatuation, or passion, right? She's not judging between love or infatuation, but what's important is that these relationships not be based on financial or material interests. Quote, all calculation in relationships must be subject to merciless condemnation, end quote. So I should note here, this means that she was opposed to prostitution as well as marriage because both institutions, both practices involved financial calculation. Um, second, or the second um, change that's important for sexual relations during the dictatorship of the proletariat. The form and the length of the relationship should not be regulated, right? That's not a matter for anybody's that anyone should pay attention to, what kind it is or how long it is. But relationships should not be based exclusively on sex and should not involve excesses. Third, she said those with heritable illnesses should not have children. And I didn't list that one. It kind of, it has this sort of early 20th century vision of a kind of, of this almost eugenicist that doesn't ring, doesn't fit well with our contemporary understandings of better ways to conceive um, public health. Um, but she was definitely, she was writing in a different um, context. Um, fourth, she said jealousy and possessiveness should be replaced by comradeship and acceptance of freedom. And finally, fifth, she said the bonds between the members of the collective must be strengthened. And she thought that this, that the bonds between members of the collective would be strengthened um, insofar as younger people are encouraged to develop their political and intellectual interests. Um, I'll note that I'm not aware of Kalantai saying anything about same-sex relationships. She does say that there are no reasons to think that public health dictates monogamy or polygamy. So she was agnostic on that. And she, and she is concerned that sexual relations with many people at one time can be detrimental to reproduction. So even though she's worried about that on the one hand, she also says there's nothing wrong with frequent changes of sexual partners. So as I read her, her rejection of the bourgeois married couple leads to a general sex positivity and inclusiveness. She writes that communist morality demands that, quote, the individual with his or her many interest has contact with a range of persons of both sexes, Community morality encourages the development of many and varied bonds of love and friendship among people, end quote. What matters most to her is not exactly the sexual element, but the social element, the breaking away from the egoism, possessiveness, and inequality that had been characteristic of the bourgeois couple. The orientation then is toward many, not just toward one other. In 
Make Way for Winged Eros, a letter to working class youth, which she wrote in 1923. Kalantai theorizes sex in terms of energy. She has these two figures, wingless Eros and winged Eros, right? Eros um, with wings and one without wings. Wingless Eros is for her natural and biological. And she associates it with a reproductive urge, but also describes it as brief and simple coupling. So we might call it hooking up. Wingless eros, right? This this brief couplings or just this sort of natural reproductive um, instinct. Um, wingless eros, she says, doesn't require emotional and psychological energy. And because it doesn't require emotional and psychological energy, this kind of casual sex is compatible with intense work elsewhere, like with revolutionary work, for example. Um, at the same time, the very absence of intensity that gives wingless eros this capacity makes it unsatisfying. I mean, people generally want something intense in their life, right? They want something meaningful. Um, so she writes, this extra energy seeks an outlet in the love experience, um, what happens then is that when our revolutionary work is done, or let's say if we're in a setting when our movement energies aren't really being met in the streets or out in struggle, right? When the movement is at one of its ebbs, it's then that we start to look for an outlet for our affective intensities. And then the winged arrows comes back in. So Kalantai's goal is to find a way to transfer that energy of winged arrows to the collective, right? Not into this coupley part, not, in, not towards this bourgeois couple, right? This possessive egoistic bourgeois couple, but transfer, transfer that same energy into the collective and make that the basis of our solidarity. And so she calls this love comradeship. She places love comradeship in a historical context, which of course she would because she's a historical materialist. Um, love comradeship is emerging, she says, as the proletarian ideal of love, the feeling of inner solidarity that comes from cooperative labor. It, quote, involves the recognition of the rights and integrity of the other's personality, a steadfast mutual support and sensitive sympathy, and responsiveness to the other's needs. Love solidarity becomes, for the dictatorship of the proletariat, what competition was for the dictatorship of the bourgeoisie. It becomes the primary social tie supposition and export expect, expectation. Collectivism then defeats individualism. Love and duty toward the collective takes the place of the isolated two of the couple. All right, so to conclude, how might Kantai um, guide us today? I've emphasized that she reminds us of the unavoidability of struggle and division. There is not a natural unity of women or of anybody for that matter. Capitalist society is class society, a society where some benefit from the exploitation and oppression of others. Capitalism is a concrete material barrier to liberation. So if we want liberation, we have to get rid of capitalism. Conti also reminds us that institutions, forms, practices, that these all have histories, they change, they're not fixed, and they're not inevitable. Attunement to history enables us, enables us to identify tendencies toward change. For example, commentary on COVID often assumes that the insight that families are facing a crisis around 
school and childcare. This commentary assumes that this is new. It's not. It's the reality for working class people, single mothers, and in recent decades for two income households. And we should be clear here that racism, white supremacy, and national oppression means that there's a disproportionate impact of people of color in the US in dealing with these. Larger percentages of people in the U.S. live alone than ever before. Increasing numbers of children do not live with two parents. The bourgeois family form is disintegrating, but the proletarian form or the socialist form anchored in solidarity has not yet emerged on a large scale. Finally, communism requires comradeship and solidarity, intense regard for others and the collective from each according to ability, to each according to need, describes both our work in revolutionary collectives and the arrangement of society that we fight to realize. To put the lesson from Kalantai in slogan form, she lets us see why there is no socialism without women's liberation and why no women's liberation without socialism. She doesn't provide the solution to all our political challenges, but her attention to the historical changes in the family form especially the impact of dependence on the wage, and her diagnosis of the problems accompanying bourgeois marriage ideology, right, egoism, possessive love, and inequality. These lead her to a view of solidarity and comradeship as necessary for social relations in the new socialist society, labor republic, the dictatorship of the proletariat, without women's liberation, that is, liberation from the bourgeois family and sexual norms, there is no socialism, no society of the producers. And without socialism, the end of private property and class and the socialization of all productive labor, any achievements in the area of women's rights remain victories for bourgeois women, not the women of the working class. In her autobiography, Kalantai writes, for me, what I am was always of less importance than what I can. That is to say, what I am in a position to accomplish. As a revolutionary, she worked to smash the constraints on what women workers and all workers could accomplish. Thank you for listening. Wow, thank you, Jody. We have so many folks who are thanking you online for this very informative discussion. Um, we have some questions that came in through Zoom and YouTube, so we can take a few for Q&A. Um, the first question we have is, um, it's one thing, to, one thing to think about free love, but in our context, when the idea of free love has been co-opted to mean liberal individualist, individualist love, is it possible to arrive at a truly free love or with this horizon? Oh, that's a, that's a wonderful question um, because Kalantai is associated with this free love idea. And um, what I think is important to realize is that she was, she situated that idea within a communist horizon, within a horizon of solidarity and comradeship. And so I think for us that what we should, that what we need to realize is that building the solidarity and comradeship has to come first. And as the, the question I think rightly recognizes that in capitalist society, it ends up being something that is um, just sort of like, seems like kind of using people and, and you know, just fulfilling one's own needs, not something that is um, based in respect and solidarity. So I think that um, we need to focus on solidarity and comradeship. And then from that standpoint, um, people should be able to engage in free love, but the solidarity comes first. 
Um, another question from Zoom is, how does Colin Tai address the issue of machismo, especially amongst the working class? Oh, that's a, a, a really good question. And um, I, I actually, I don't have a, a I, I've got two answers. I got to have a, a kind of abstract answer, but there, there's a new book that um, it has just come out and I can um, find it and, and put it in the chat. That is, I think the name of the editor of it is um, Dora Garcia. And she um, she's an artist and has put together writings from Colin Tai and then some um, specific focus on Colin Tai's period um, as am, the ambassador to Mexico and how her interactions with Mexican um, um, feminists, Mexican communist feminist and how they were talking about issues around uh, machismo and men there. So I was, I picked on that because of the word machismo rather than just sort of like, you know, I don't know, bad bro behavior. So that's the first thing. There's some interesting um, brand new work on, on um, the specifics there. Um, but with respect to men, um, machismo in the working class, she doesn't talk about that. She does not um, look at men and women in the working class as um, opponents of one another or as an, in antagonistic relations with one another. She focuses primarily on the antagonism of the wor of workers to capitalists, seeing that there that in fact at the end of the day, you know, both the men and man and woman worker, or husband and wife worker are struggling for their family's survival, and that brings them together. And so she doesn't talk about um, um, you know machismo or men in that context. Um, for some people, that's a real omission in her work. Yeah. Um, another question we have is a three-part question. It's pretty big, so I'm going to break this down a little bit. Um, just going to go to the second one. It says, can you speak more to Kalantai's struggle with her own party to incorporate pro proletarian feminist uh, demands as we are a part of movements today with which we may have disagreements, how can we learn from Colin Tai's work in the in this respect to steer the direct the direction of her party? I'm asking as an organizer. Um, that's a that's a great question. Um, let's see. Um, what it seems to so it's a little bit tricky on like finding um, good examples of details that can answer the question, in part because um, a lot of her papers and diaries haven't been translated, and so the question has to come from her published writing, and um, she stops doing a whole lot of active publishing after she's kind of pushed. She's marginalized in the party um, after it's like after 21. And then during this um, Stalin era, she, I mean, she was actually one of the few Bolsheviks who survived the um, old Bolsheviks who survived the Stalin era, but she was pretty quiet. So um, in, later in her life, she, um, she was not terribly, she was not successful in fighting for issues. She had to, she quiet herself down. Um, people guess as a matter of survival. But during the earlier years, it seems like what the way she did it was perseverance, right? Just with like, just constantly persevering, going out and being in the struggle. So being being in the struggle with the laundry workers, being involved in organizing that strike, and then publicizing what they were doing. So it seemed like actually organizing women, being in those struggles, publicizing that work, and consistently showing like, look, these are the fights that matter. These are the actions that matter. This is where the energy is. And she seemed to, from, from my read, it seems like this is how she was winning them over, was by that consistent labor work. Thank you. 
And then the other part to that, to this question is, um, Kalantai herself was not from a working class background. Could you speak to betraying one's own class interests because of the ideological and political conviction? EMS and many others have done the same. How does that tie into Kalantai's discussion of the inherent inability of bourgeois feminists to support proletarian women because of their economic interests, given the class interests she was born into? Oh, that's cool. That's a good question. Um, I, I, the way I see the the question, um, the way I want to answer this is that when she's talking about bourgeois feminists, she's not saying this about this individual woman here and that individual woman there. She's actually explicit about that. Like, I'm not talking about you know, any one person's ability to think something. She's talking about the groups that are organizing and the bourgeois feminist groups were not taking up women's concrete, you know, working women's concrete issues. I mean, you can, it's, I, 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 I feel like sometimes we, we also see that um, particularly in the U.S. Um, with race groups, right? With, when white women feminists don't pay attention to claims that come from women's experiences as women of color, then their demands just seem to just reflect white women's concerns, right? So it has to do with thinking. And again, it's not saying something about the actual, this individual woman here, this individual woman there. It's about how are the groups working? Are the groups taking concrete attention paying concrete attention to these concerns. I mean, um, at one of the very first Congress of um, Socialist Women, it was like in 1908, I think, 1907, 1908. Um, it was an international one. It was held in Stockholm. And a bunch of the European feminists were arguing for voting rights for women and there should be no voting discrimination on the basis of sex. And Conti was in a fierce fight with them saying, you have to fight for working class women's right to vote. And the reason at that time, it was also the case that working, there was property requirements in many countries for male, for men. And so it was, uh, there was a class, it was just like in the US, there was the, the issue around um, voting for um, African-Americans and voting for women in the European context, it was voting for working class and voting um, voting working class rights and women's rights. And so she was like, no, we have to take the perspective of working women's right to vote. If you don't do that, you, you are excluding them. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Jody. Um, another question on Zoom is what changed between 1905 and 1914 made the party more receptive to Kalantai and her comrades' position? Um, I'd say that... Um, Two, I would say two things, but there's probably more, but just in general, we can focus on two things. One, um, the work that Colin Ty and her comrades did to, I mean, her women comrades in the party, to hold up women's struggles, just to keep them, keep their, their work organizing working class women and publicizing their struggles. And then the decayed economic conditions that started happening with, um, as World War I was going on, right? That industry starts to collapse, there's problems with um, agriculture. So there's real problems that then lead to um, a, a crisis of social reproduction and the difficulty in securing food, the difficulty and, you know, and, and problems with high prices, um, all sorts of bread strikes. So there's, pro there's just problems in meeting material needs. And then it was at that point, it's realizing, oh, we do have to take care of these sort of housewife concerns. Um, I have a YouTube question. Um, how did Colin Ty understand internationalism? I think I have someone asked to. But yeah, there are two questions that are very much within the same line. 
So Colin Tight, well, you know, she was a diplomat. And so she was a, a in service of the new Soviet government internationally. So she part of her regular her job once she was official in the Soviet government was to create international ties. Um, while she was she was also before the 1917 revolution, um, she was in exile for quite a while in Europe and spent a lot of time um, doing on speaking and writing in different countries. And then, as I said, went to the United States um, before, you know, to try to stop World War One. I. I mean, to you know, stop the entry of the war, grab up, um, build up opposition to the war. So it's clear from her um, her activity and her practice that she recognized that the um, the revolution has to be international. That the political struggle is the struggle for communism is an international struggle. Um, and then after. Um, she moves out of the center of things. She um, doesn't say a lot because Stalin, you know, has a different approach. Okay. Um, well, we're getting close to time and I wanted to finish this off with this last question, um, which is what are some key readings you'd recommend to further understand Kalantai's socialist feminism? Um, so the, one of the great things is that um, you can read almost everything she wrote or that's been translated into English online at the, um, on the, it's Alexandra Kalantai archive on the Marxist internet archive. And so that's a great place to go. Um, a book version of selective writings, um, there's an, it's, it's called Alexandra Kalantai's um, Selected Writings is there. And that's edited by um, Alex Holt, H-O-L-T. That's a good you know, single volume thing so you don't have to read online. Mm-hmm. Once you're in that, I mean, I really like her, um, her text, oh, now I've got to get the exact names of it. I like, her, um, in particular, her um, social, um, let's the com, um, sexual relations in the class struggle is great, and communism and the family, those are two really good ones. So sexual, um, sexual relations in the class struggle and communism in the family. Um, also, her the social basis of the woman question for getting um, the history is really good. There's also, um, I mentioned one new book. There's also a brand, another brand new um, large reader called Red Love, um, a reader on Alexandra Kollontai. And it has a whole bunch of different writings from, the, many of them are, are, are really um, kind of coolly avant-garde. And some, some of them are academic, some of them are poems, some of them are plays, but those would be my, that's what I would recommend. Awesome. And would you uh, recommend any of the leaders that we should study um, in your opinion? Um, well, I, I would, I, I think it's also good to have um, folks from the, the U.S. if you're moving in that thing. So um, Asada Shakur, um, Angela Davis are both super interesting. Um, um, if you want more from the um, revolutionary time, um, the conversation between Clara Zetkin and Lenin um, is really interesting. It's sort of weird, um, but I really, I recommend it. And Rosa Luxemburg is wonderful. And looking at Rosa Luxemburg's and her discussion of the mass strike is a wonderful thing to read. And also some of her debates with Lenin. Awesome. 
Well, once again, thank you so much, Jody, for joining us and for this very informative discussion. Um, for those who have been asking questions, we're so sorry we didn't, didn't get a chance to get to them all. Um, but if you want to learn a bit more about Alexandra Kalantai's work and some of her readings, um, please check out the politicaleducation.peoplesforum.org. We'll have some postings there. And we'll also include some links to um, purchase out of some of Jody Dean's books as well. So there'll be some information on that. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you, Jody. Um, thanks for Thank folks you. on the back end who's been supporting this uh, event as well. Um, we'll see you all soon. Stay safe.